Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia. I'm Eric Edelman. I'm counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments and a Bulwark contributor and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My normal partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, is traveling and will report back on his travels next week. But I'm joined today by a very special guest, the Bulwark's own Mona Charon, the policy editor of The Bulwark, a syndicated columnist, the host of Beg to Differ, The Bulwark's excellent podcast, and the author of many books, and not just many books, but many good books. She's the author of Do-Gooders, Sex Matters, Hard Right, and a book that I particularly want to talk to her about today, Useful Idiots. Mona, welcome to Shield of the Republic. It's a privilege to be here, Eric. I'm a huge fan of Shield of the Republic, which I listen to faithfully and learn a lot from. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for joining us today. As I've told you in the past, Useful Idiots was a very important book for me. Uh, I remember reading it um, while I was the U.S. ambassador to Turkey in the 2003 to 2005 time period. It came out in 2003, and it talked about a particular kind of homegrown anti-Americanism uh, that helped me a lot because I actually think anti-Americanism starts at home <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, is picked up by uh, our adversaries overseas. Tell our listeners a little bit about Useful Idiots uh, and the folks you profiled during the Cold War before we move on to today's Useful Idiots. <laughs> right. Um, so, what spurred me to write the book uh, was that during the um, immediate aftermath of the West's victory in the Cold War, when the USSR basically folded its tent, pulled down its flag, said, we're done, the Berlin Wall came down, it was an unambiguous um, victory for the forces of liberty and a defeat for the communist world. Obviously, there are still regimes um, that, that maintain fealty to communism, so they're not all gone, but it was a huge epical moment. And, um, and what I noticed was that there was a certain amount of revisionism that was taking hold in the U.S. where people were saying, oh, yes, you know, like, for example, in the Clinton years, people saying, yes, back during the Cold War, we were all on the same page. We were all cold warriors. We all were uh, pulling our oars in the same direction. And I thought, well, hold on. That's not true. That's not how I remember it. And in fact, you know, the subject of whether we were even on the right side in the Cold War was a matter of deep dis division in our society. Um, and there were people who... Um, were extremely anti-communist. And I think it's no surprise to any of your listeners that um, there were people who went kind of, you know, who were, who were a little bit crazed on the subject of finding communists under every bed. Um, there was the McCarthy phenomenon. So there were people who went too far on the side of anti-communism. Um, and that, then there were people who went too far in the other direction on the side of being if not pro-communist, and some were, but uh, but anti-anti-communist. So that was the posture of, I think, uh, big chunks of the um, Democratic Party during the Cold War. They um, after Vietnam, I won't go into too much detail, but. Basically, there was a big um, divergence within uh, liberal opinion after Vietnam. Uh, uh, many, many people decided that not only was the Vietnam War intervention on our part a mistake, which I think most of us agree with, um, but uh, but the entire struggle against communism itself was was misbegotten. And so there was a huge fight within, um, a huge domestic fight in the United States between those like the Reaganites, who wanted to support forces of freedom around the world, who wanted to do whatever we could to um, hamper the goals of the worldwide communist movement. Um, and that was basically the position of the Republicans. And the position of the Democrats was actually, no, uh, some of you, some Democrats took that view, to be clear, but many more took the view that, no, no, the most important thing is to... Um, 
is to negotiate arms control agreements and just make sure that this conflict doesn't become a world war. That was their big priority. And they believe that arms control led to peace, which is debatable. In fact, I don't believe that. And then finally, there were people, and I, these are the ones who I called the useful idiots. And by the way, that's a term of art. It's a, it, not a phrase that I originated. It was traced to uh, Vladimir Lenin, who supposedly said that the liberals in the West would be useful idiots for their cause. Um, and so there were people in the Democratic Party, sort of on the left, or part, left part of the Democratic Party, who went beyond um, believing in arms control. They were real cheerleaders for these different communist regimes around the world. And so first it was Russia. Then when the Russians engaged in purges and uh, mass deaths, they moved on to China. And when China was no longer the bright young thing, they moved on to Cuba, Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and then on to Nicaragua. We call them the Sandalistas, the people who traipse down there to, uh, uh, to, to, to praise these regimes. And um, so in a nutshell, that was what my book was about. It was about the people who deluded themselves out of ideological affinity into overlooking the really horrendous, severe uh, human rights abuses and aggression and, you know, just the crushing of the human spirit that went on in these regimes. They, they managed to overlook all that because they were broadly on the left. And it was Padenemi Agosh. And so um, this book provides chapter and verse. I, I quoted them and, I, uh, and, and I, I was trying to call them to account because they turned out to be so wrong. And the very people in those regimes, once they got a chance, once they were able to vote or once they were able, out from under the, the uh, heavy um, uh, militarized, uh, you know, the use of force in those regimes to keep uh, to keep the population at bay, they um, they voted for democracy. They voted for for liberty and for a more Western way of life. So that's a very long winded answer to your question. I want to pull on that thread, Mona, of uh, ideological uh, self delusion uh, that you spoke about. You know, no enemies uh, on the left, because I think there's some lessons, perhaps, uh, for those of us on the right today about what happened to those folks you described on the left. I mean, the the other tradition you've described in essence in the book and just now in that beautiful capsule summary you gave, anti-anti-communism. And there was also a tradition in, in the Democratic Party. I mean, actually, I came out of that tradition before I became a Republican, which was the tradition of liberal uh, anti-communism. It was a tradition, you know, I think represented by Harry Truman uh, when he ran in 1948 against a uh, left-wing Democratic candidate, uh, Henry Wallace, who had been Roosevelt's uh, vice president before Truman. It was represented by Hubert Humphrey uh, in the 1950s and, and Scoop Jackson. And there was a whole uh, wing of the Democratic Party that essentially said these uh, communist ideas are beyond the pale and can't be you know, countenanced in, in our politics because they're fundamentally- Including, including Lumi, uh, sorry, let me just interrupt for sure. one quick sec, including union leaders like George Meany. Yes. They were a very critical part of the anti-communist liberal Absolutely. Uh, consensus. And the, yes, the effort to, to kick the communists out of the, uh, out of the CIO. Um, and th that was a very important part in my view of how and why the United States was successful in the Cold War, because not only did it it represent a policing by those on the center left of the extremists who would apologize for totalitarianism, but it also represented uh, an ability to galvanize others in the West to stand up for um, for democracy and and freedom in uh, efforts like the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was funded by the CIA, but provided a space in Europe uh, where the left was ascendant after the defeat of fascism in, in Europe in World War II, uh, to uh, regroup and repair and create a kind of center-right politics that uh, and center-left politics that could hold 
the totalitarians and communists at bay. So I want to come back to that in a minute because I think there's some lessons for those of us on the right to learn. But can, you know, what is it, do you think, that draws people on the alt-right or the new right today to engage in the kind of apologetics for Putin and for Viktor Orban in Hungary that liberals you know, on the left engaged in for uh, Stalin and the whole litany of uh, subsequent communist regimes that you just walked through. I mean, they were always celebrating, you know, the next pure socialist triumph that would, you know, then immediately, you know, evaporate until they could find the next one. But what drives people on the right to do this? Yeah, I'll come to the right in a second. But what, one of the things, one of the patterns that I'm sure you recall is there'd be a new communist, uh, you know, uh, there would be a revolutionary movement in some country, right? And so the first thing that would be said is that the communists were part of a broad coalition with a lot of other groups, right? Which would actually be true, right? And, uh, and therefore not to worry, but then there would be the coup and usually backed by the Soviets and sometimes the Chinese, right? So then there'd be the coup and then they would say, these aren't the communists are not the ones who've succeeded here. These are, you know, great agrarian reformers, right? Then when they began to take money from the Soviets and cut shut down the press, the, the, the protesting press and, and uh, you know, uh, oppress the churches and so on, then they would say, well, you know, if the U.S. hadn't been so hostile, these people would not have been forced into the arms of the Soviets and so on. I mean, isn't that, wasn't that the, the pattern again and again and again? It was always somehow the fault of um, somebody other than the people who were, uh, uh, than the protagonists themselves. It's what led Gene Kirkpatrick famously to, you know, describe the Democratic Party and uh, that met in San Francisco in 1984 as the Blame America First Party. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so it is a fascinating thing now. So perhaps I need to write um, a, a sequel to Useful Idiots and this time focus on the right because so much of the, uh, so many of the tendencies are similar. So you see now, well, you saw then this um, uh, desire to find a country out there that was the kind of, um, you know, fantasized uh, uh, socialist utopia that would, by contrast with the U.S., show that, uh, that, you know, it's possible to have pure equality and to have, you know, people's democracy and this place, you know, and so on. And because of that, the credulity was just amazing about places. I mean, Robert Scher, I think was his name, even waxed eloquent about North Korea for a while. I mean, you know, it was just, it was, their, their, their credulity knew no bounds. There was a lot of revolutionary tourism that was going on. There, that's right. Paul Hollander uh, wrote a book called Political Pilgrims, where he, you know, described these people traipsing off to to find joy. And, and uh, you know, they... they as we were saying a second ago, you know, they they would fall out of love with one regime like the Cuban, uh, and uh, but find another one uh, a few years later, and uh, and and not learn their lesson about the fact that the way you judge a, they were very sympathetic to countries that were hostile to the U.S. because they did blame America first, um, but but uh, the critique of them was, well, why don't you judge them by how they treat their own people? rather than how much they hate the U.S. Maybe that's a better guide to finding uh, whether a country is worthy of admiration. Um, well, so now you have uh, the political tourists on the right. You've got John O'Sullivan, former, um, former editor of National Review magazine, who now lives in uh, Budapest uh, part-time and is the head of something called the Danube Institute. Where does the Danube Institute get its money? Well, from Viktor Orban's government. Uh, and he has become, you know, a, a cheerleader for Orban. Um, and you've had CPAC um, inviting Orban to speak and then uh, also holding one of their conferences uh, in Hungary. You've had uh, Rod Dreher, uh, an intellectual, a writer for the American Conservative, 
you've had, um, let's see, uh, Sorab Amari uh, heading over there, Patrick Deneen, Chris DeMuth, uh, Yoram Hazoni, Jordan Peterson. Tucker Carlson. They have all, Tucker, and most importantly, yes, Tucker Carlson making pilgrimages to Hungary and lauding the regime there. And again, doing exactly what I was identifying had been done by leftists uh, in earlier decades uh, with left-wing regimes, you know, ignoring all of the, um, all of the unflattering facts about the regime that they are lauding. And uh, I, I wrote this down. I thought it was great. Somebody wrote a, a response to uh, Tucker, somebody who, who was a Hungarian. And he said, um, he said, that, you know, dear Mr. Carlson, he said, you desperately want to believe that somewhere on this planet, there exists a Christian conservative Disneyland. And, uh, and that's really, um, that's, that's so well put. And of course, uh, the critics point out, well, you know, Orban is, uh, is repressing free speech. He is corrupt. He is in league with Putin. He is, uh, you know, a very unreliable ally of the United States. Um, and, uh, uh, and he is, uh, you know, he, he is not far from, you know, this, this Christian utopia. Um, it's, uh, it's quite a repressive place that unfortunately has taken a, a, a U-turn you know, it had been a communist country. It then went through a period of reform and it was heading in the right direction. And now under Orban, it's, it's taking a U-turn and heading back to being a repressive country of the right-wing variety instead of, of the left-wing variety. Yeah, I feel this keenly personally, having been, you know, the U.S. ambassador to Turkey and watched uh, Erdogan uh, take this authoritarian turn. And, and it was already visible in outline when I was there. And now, of course, very visible in the way he has uh, run the country for the last the last 20 years. It, it strikes me as I was listening to you, Mona, that history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. You know, um, this is uh, once again, sort of, you know, sort of ideological blinders leading uh, people to apologize for regimes that they are holding up as models in response to their own critique of, of, of home, of the United States. Yes. And, yes. and, you know, if you believe, you know, in American carnage, that the, the, the U.S. is going through a terrible moment and that religion is, uh, you know, being uh, persecuted in the United States and that, you know, everything is uh, going to hell in a handbasket and that, you know, Viktor Orban's Hungary or even worse, Vladimir Putin's Russia are these havens for Judeo-Christian values and conservative values and anti-LGBTQ, et cetera, um, you know, that can lead you, you know, to, to this kind of uh, inverted apologetics that you see coming. And it's so, it's no surprise that, you know, Tucker Carlson now is a regular feature on, you know, nightly Russian uh, television propaganda broadcasts, but moreover, it, you know, there's a fundamental problem with all of this, which is if you look, for instance, at church attendance in Russia or Hungary and compare it to the United States, we are still by far a more religious country with more religious, self-identified religious believers in, in polling than either of those places. Absolutely. And by a large margin, um, Look, one of the things that this reveals about the right is that, um, you know, and it does make me look back on some people on the right, not not people like you and not people like Elliot and others, but look at them and realize that, um, that the reason they were anti-communist in the first place, maybe I misunderstood, okay? Because um, I assume that, the reason to be an anti-communist is that they uh, are they, they use violence. They don't permit elections. They repress uh, freedoms, every kind of freedom, religious freedom, social freedom, freedom to move. They wouldn't let people leave the country. It was a big 
imprisoned the USSR. Ask Natan Sharansky, who wrote a fantastic uh, prison diary, which, by the way, as I understand it, uh, Navalny is now reading in prison. Um, but uh, Fear No Evil, I think it was called. Yes. Um, and uh, um, but so, you know, but it turns out um, that if if you're the kind of person who can pivot um, from having been an anti-communist to now being a pro-Putin or pro-Orban person, well, then it wasn't the repression that bothered you. It was something else. Maybe it was, you know, the fact that uh, these places were anti-religious or that they, you know, the, the old communist regimes or that they were, you know, against the rich, or at least they claimed to be, where they had their own nomenclatura, as we know. You know, the when when people express admiration, whether they're from the right or the left, for regimes that are repressive, they are not good Americans, right? Because to be a good American, you have to adhere, in my judgment, and yes, I am being judgmental, um, you, you have to respect our constitution, our way of life, our liberties, um, and if you're willing to apologize for any regime that doesn't respect those liberties in the name of, um, you know, getting one over on, you know, your domestic opponents, um, then, then you're showing you're not really dedicated to the principles that this country is founded upon and should be most proud of. Couldn't agree more. And I think that leads very naturally into a discussion of the, how one should frame the debate that's going on in the Republican Party even now over the 2024 presidential nomination with regard to American foreign policy. I mean, both you and I served in the Reagan administration. I think we both consider ourselves proud Reaganauts and, and cold warriors. And what I see going on in the Republican primaries, I find both kind of mystifying to, in one sense, but also depressing which is to say that candidates who are advocating for this kind of, you know, admiration of Putin and hostility towards Ukraine in the current conflict, like Donald Trump, like Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, like Ron DeSantis, account for roughly 83% of the Republican uh, primary electorate, according to polls. And those candidates who in the first debate spoke out strongly for Ukraine and critical of this sort of neo-isolationist uh, trend and in favor of the kinds of things, uh, you know, that you and I would have found, you know, sort of the mainstream Republican approach for the last 40 years, peace through strength, you know, buildup of American, uh, you know, defenses, uh, but willingness to negotiate at an appropriate time. Those candidates, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, and and Chris Christie, uh, as vigorous as they've been, and by the way, Chris Christie in the la even in the last few days uh, on television has been very vigorous in his defense of democracy and and uh, arguing passionately the United States needs to stand up to uh, authoritarian aggressors who are um, seizing territory of their neighbors. But the three of them represent something like, you know, in the aggregate, 13 to 15 percent of the party. What what's going on here, do you think? And, and, you know, how should we think about it? Well, not wanting to read too much into any particular snapshot in time, but let's think back on that debate for a second, because I do think that it's emblematic of something of the moment we're at, because I think the. Um, I think the cement is still wet in terms of where Republican opinion is going to go about our world role and about Ukraine and so on. It is trending, no question, in a, in a worrisome direction, very worrisome. I'll add to what you said. I was looking at a poll that said 62% um, of Democrats back additional funding for Ukraine uh, compared with just 28% of Republicans. So that's that's where things have trended. But this is down very dramatically from uh, 18 months ago when uh, Putin first invaded and Republicans were um, strongly in favor of 
aid to Ukraine. So it's it has dropped off quite a bit. Um, but at that debate, you saw the, um, the crowd kind of, you know, at first they were, you know, they cheered Ramaswamy with his really absurd and, and uh, patronizing and demagogic appeals to ridiculous positions um, like, uh, you know, we're, we're going to let... Uh, we're, we're going to map out a deal with Putin and, uh, you know, he, he's going to promise to cut off his relations with China and in return, we're going to give him parts of Ukraine. I mean, the whole thing is just so preposterous. Um, but the crowd was sort of energized by Ramaswamy. They liked what he was saying. But then when Nikki Haley schooled him, they cheered for her too. And so that's what I mean by the cement is wet. Like public opinion hasn't really gelled completely on the Republican side and leadership right now makes a huge, huge difference. Um, And I can't say that I'm optimistic about the direction that it's going because first of all, that debate was among people who are not going to get the nomination or in all likelihood are probably not going to get the nomination. And it seems very likely that it's going to be Trump. And we know that he is, uh, I'm not going to use bad language, but he is uh, very fond of Putin um, and uh, and in awe of Putin. So that's uh, pretty clear what that would mean for Ukraine if, God forbid, he were to be reelected. Um, but, um, and the other, the other thing to say is that leaving the you know, the, the public is led by opinion leaders and the way things are going on Fox and the other outlets of conservative opinion through talk radio and the internet and so on, the loudest voices, the Steve Bannons and others is in a very authoritarian friendly direction. And that seems to be the, um, where the, when those people have the wind in their sails um, and the very fact that Rabaswamy uh, has, you know, uh, gotten all of this attention and buzz as the the Trump wannabe, but as you know, somebody who whose foreign policy views are juvenile and uh, but extremely um, autocrat friendly, uh, tells you something about the the base of the Republican Party now. And so it is, yeah, very very scary. Of course, I mean, there's a history here too, which is that uh, there always was a, a tradition of it was called isolationism. I'm not sure that's exactly the right term, um, but the uh, Republican Party had a uh, a strong wing. It wasn't just Republic, conservative Republicans, by the way, also some uh, liberal uh, Democrats, so-called progressive Democrats in the 20s and 30s who did not want to be involved in, in Europe's affairs thought the United States could stay out. Many of them advocated an Asia first policy rather than focusing on the storm clouds in in Europe in the late 1930s. In 1940, when Roosevelt ran for a third term, uh, it looked for all the world like the Republican nominee was going to be Robert Taft, Mr. Conservative, the senator from Ohio. Um, The Republican establishment at the time kind of intervened and and uh, created a boom for Wendell Wilkie, who had actually been a Democrat, but was the, a, a, a actually an energy um, executive at, at the time, who was a, a kind of internationalist and supported aid to the Allies. This was before um, Pearl Harbor and before Hitler de- declared war on the United States. Taft remained a very powerful force in the Republican Party, and that uh, line of thought remained pretty powerful until Dwight Eisenhower came back from Europe as uh, Supreme Allied Commander in 1952 to prevent the Republican nominee from being Robert Taft, and, and Eisenhower became the nominee. And that the sort of uh, that sort of isolationist current kind of was dormant, I would say, in the Republican Party until 2016. I mean, others came. You know, there were Rand Paul seemed to and Ron Paul seemed to represent that current as well. But it was very Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan, but it was very much a minority. Um, mm-hmm. It really took Trump in 2015 and 2016 to sort of uh, really revivify uh, all of this. So you know, there's a kind of history to this that we shouldn't, I think, 
gainsay. But I guess it it then could I just interrupt? Yeah, please. Sorry, no, one go ahead. Second, just to say just to say that um, that Wendell Wilkie was one of the great heroes of American history, in my opinion. I agree. He gets an unsung hero uh, because at the price of his own political uh, fortunes, he he wanted to do the right thing, and he refused to demagogue the issue of giving aid to the Allies. He was for it. He helped Roosevelt tremendously during the on war. That score. Yes. And, uh, and, you know, he, he died tragically quite young, but uh, anyway, he was um, a heroic figure. Another figure that, you know, I think is quite heroic was Arthur Vandenberg, who himself was uh, kind of of that Taftite isolationist um, uh, ilk. But after the impact of Pearl Harbor and World War II, realized that right. in the modern world, that kind of approach just wouldn't work and became a very important part of the founding of NATO and yes. uh, and and the creation of a kind of internationalist consensus, both left and right, that, you know, really helped guide the country through the Cold War, helped, helped win the Cold War. Uh, because although there were debates, of course, during the Cold War, as you rightly said earlier, not everybody was you know, agreed about how best to deal with um, with the Soviet challenge, there was a very broad consensus in the country um, that that allowed us to to win. So I guess, you know, one of my questions is kind of what is the responsibility of those of us on the center right, you know, seeing this pattern of, of useful idiocy, you know, uh, now occurring on our side of the political house, as it were, what responsibility do we have for sort of policing that? And I'll add one other provocative thought, you know, I've said it before on the, on the show, which is that, you know, Leo Strauss famously said the argument ad Hitlerum is always, you know, a bad argument, but I am reading uh, a biography of Hitler uh, by Brendan Sims, the British historian, it's called a global biography, which is really a misnomer. It, it's really a kind of ideological biography of Hitler. And it actually makes a powerful case that Hitler was uh, very uh, focused on the United States and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the Anglosphere in general, the British and the Americans, uh, which is one reason why he declared war on us in, in, mm-hmm. um, in 1941 after Pearl Harbor. But if you look at the rhetoric that Sims, uh, you know, walks you through as Hitler is becoming a, a, a powerful political figure in Germany in, in the 20s and 30s, it is a critique of international finance capital, globalization, globalism, global elites. And for all the life of me, and I'm not suggesting that you know, Josh Hawley or J.D. Vance or Hitler. But if you listen to their arguments, you know, it's very similar in terms of the ideological tenor and character to go back to the point you were making, that this is not the kind of conservatism that, you know, that Ronald Reagan espoused and that you and I grew up in in the the Republican Party. It sure isn't. Um, By the way, my husband read that book. So uh, he told me about that that thesis about his uh, preoccupation with the U.S., which is interesting. I recently reread um, *The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich*, which is uh, really an amazing piece of history. Um, and uh, and there are—I'm sorry, but there are a lot of parallels. There just are, right. you know, with people who um, who don't really—they don't approve, and they think he's crude and all of that. But you know, he does make some good points and. You know, these people have been neglected and we have to listen to that, you know, all that stuff. Um, so, look, um, one thing is, you know, that in order to have influence with people, um, you have to, you know, you have to have some common ground. So I tried at my appearance at CPAC in 2018 because I was a conservative. I tried to say, you know, look. Uh, we can't criticize, uh, you know, only Democrats for, you know, mistreating women and for Me Too episodes and all the rest of it. We have to be honest about those on our own side or we're going to lack credibility. And I and I couldn't have said that if I had been a lefty. Right. You can't say that to CPAC audience. You wouldn't have been invited, et cetera. 
Of course, having done that once, I'm not going to be invited back to CPAC. So I'm not going to be in a position to... It was a very courageous appearance and it's a badge of honor <laughs> that you're not being invited back. Well, well, yeah, thanks. I, I, you know, I, I thank you for that. I agree with that. But um, uh, still, um, you know, you, you have to find um, those voices on the conservative side that are brave enough to say the right thing. So you need to elevate uh, the Raff, the Brad Raffensburgers, uh, the Ken Bucks, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the Gabe Sterlings, all of the people. And by the way, there was quite a long list of Republicans who, when it came to the 2020 election, including Mike Pence, uh, who had they acted differently, we would have been in a much more horrific constitutional crisis than what we faced on that day. So um, those people have to be um, have to be lauded and elevated. And, um, you know, it's it's I, to the degree that, that you and I still have any credibility among uh, conservatives, you know, hopefully, you know, we can do our small uh, parts. Um, but um, the problem is with this kind of um, severe polarized thinking. And I've had this happen with even people in my own family where I was trying to argue them out of um, support for Trump. And it comes down to the same argument all the time, which is, by the way, the same argument that you find historically as well, which is they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, Trump, no question about it. I don't like him, they'll say. And I wouldn't want my kids to be like him. But when the other side is so extreme and so radical, you need a really vicious leader to take them on because the worst possible thing is for the left to get back in power. And, uh, you know, that's the way their minds work. And it happens on both sides. Um, But at the moment, I feel very strongly that as much as I vehemently disagree with many things about the Democratic Party, um, and, uh, and I, I, I think they're misguided on many subjects, um, I agree. particularly, particularly, I will say, at the risk of getting a lot of hate mail, I think they are so wrong about the whole trans kids thing, where I, I think this is a big mistake that they're heading down. But but when it comes to who poses a bigger threat to our democratic experiment, is it liberals or conservatives? It's not, it's not a hard judgment. It's conservatives. It's the right. The threat from the right now is much more immediate and much more serious. And I don't know how it's, how our country is going to do if Trump is reelected. I mean, I, I really, it's almost, it's almost unthinkable. I, but, but on the other hand, um, you know, as one of my lines of work is nuclear deterrence and as, you know, Herman Kahn taught us, you have to think about the unthinkable. (laughs) So it's, yes. So it's, um, it's, and, and JVL has been doing a, you know, a a pretty good job of that. And Charlie as well. uh, Yeah. And other parts of the, of the sprawling bulwark empire. Um, I, I, um, I take some heart in the fact that I, as as we speak, I think Mike Pence is giving a speech uh, about uh, populism versus conservatism. And while I think he's, as according to what I read in the press, he is not going to you know call out Trump by name. And of course, he bears some responsibility for having, like Chris Christie, uh, yeah. normalized Trump. I think it's a healthy sign, though, that he, he sees this as a uh, sort of an ideological issue has to be taken on inside the party. And, yep. and so I think that's a, you know, a, a, a glimmering of some hope that, you know, maybe others will take up that mantle as well and, and try and defend the more traditional. He's doing it very explicitly, as I understand, as a defense of Reaganite, you know, sort of conservatism. And it is uh, it is a good thing. I don't know how far it will go, but it is a good thing that on that debate stage, um, 
everybody except Ron DeSantis and Ram and Ramaswamy um, said, well, e- well, no, uh, Ron DeSantis did eventually say that Mike Pence did the right thing on January right. 6th. Right. Mike Pence was right to force the issue and to make that because the question was asked and they sort of slid past it and he made the math, you know, answer it again. And, um, and so, you know, that at least, um, at least is a marker of some kind. I, I'm, I'm not sure how, how much difference it will make. It's also, um, again, you know, the, it seems possible to me, um, that, even though the Republican Party is circling the wagons around Trump, um, that this rally around the flag phenomenon is something that, um, I don't want to, I don't want to make predictions that I'm going to have to eat. So let me, let me be very careful how I phrase this. (laughs) Um, Look, uh, there are millions, maybe tens of millions of Americans who do not know what Trump is accused of having done. They just don't. They say, oh, they're, they're after him. He's, they're, they're, they're always after him. And uh, it's all political. Uh, but that when they actually see the evidence that is presented at a trial, some of them may be seeing it for the first time. We'll see. We certainly know that in terms of like this nightmare that we're all worried about, whether he could get reelected, we know that 20% of Republicans are telling pollsters they will not vote for Trump, period. So that's, if that holds true, that's enough perhaps to prevent him from being reelected. Though, by the way, it's not enough for the Democrat to win the popular vote. They have to win it by four or five points because of the electoral college, uh, uh, asymmetry. Um, but, uh, but then if you look at independent voters who decide our elections, uh, they are much closer in their views to Democrats about how much they dislike Trump than they are to Republicans. So uh, we have to, you know, that's, it's cold comfort. It's not much, but that's what I'm, uh, that's what it may come down to. I was laughing at you and you said you didn't want to have to you know, uh, eat some, you know, at some point in the future, a prediction made here on, on Shield of the Republic. I, when I was serving in Moscow at the embassy back in the late 80s, which was a period of high perestroika, and um, we were going through the period of Glasnost, a lot of historical revelations were coming out. A lot of documents were being opened, etc. Um, and the joke was in, in, in the Soviet Union now, it's very hard to predict the past. So. Oh, <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yeah. Mona, you are a a former speechwriter for Mrs. Mm -hmm. Reagan. And and you just uh, you wrote a column last year uh, at the outset of the war in Ukraine uh, about the speech that uh, Joe Biden should give to the nation about this uh, fight and why it's important to Americans. And I noticed that you reposted it yesterday on Twitter or X, whatever it is now. I think you reminded me. (laughs) So um, what, you know, now that we're a year and a half into this, and some of us have, and particularly on Shield of the Republic, we've been banging away at the fact that the president has yet to really present the case to the American public. He has not made a full-throated defense of, uh, you know, the policy. He hasn't explained why it's in the American interest to provide upwards of $100 billion in assistance, both military and um, economic, to Ukraine. He's made all sorts of comments, uh, you know, on the run to gaggles of, you know, of news media folks either getting on or off Air Force One or on a bike ride at Rehoboth. But he's not done, you know, the sort of... uh, primetime Oval Office address that at least I think is necessary. Maybe it's, you know, not possible anymore because our media environment is so fragmented. You couldn't be sure that all the networks would cover it, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe you can't do that anymore the way President Reagan did, the way 
President Eisenhower and Kennedy and and uh, even Johnson or even George Nixon, W. Bush. George W. Bush. I mean, you know, the, so maybe it's not possible anymore. But I mean, I still think it's necessary, given that we've had another you know uh, year plus uh, since you wrote initially. What would you say in the speech? How would you how, how would you try to persuade the American public that what happens in Ukraine is terribly important for? the future of American uh, peace and prosperity? Um, Well, first of all, let me just say, I find it utterly mystifying why Biden didn't seize this opportunity greedily, because uh, there is rarely an opportunity, there's rarely a topic on which it is possible to be so presidential as giving an important address on a matter of international you know, uh, peace or war. I mean, that is where you are at the height of your powers as president and your influence as a world leader. And I would think he would want to um, seize that and uh, and own it. Uh, you know, stopping on your bike in Rehoboth and saying, you know, yeah, we're going to do it as long, we're going to do whatever, whatever, ta- no, that's, you know, trivializes it. Um Okay, so that's the first thing. I'm utterly mystified as to why he hasn't seized it. Um, And you're right, it's not going to be the same as Reagan or or even Clinton giving a a primetime address. Not the same at all because of our different media environment, but it would still be covered. It would still get uh, a lot of attention and it would it would appear in little clips on TikTok and, you know, Twitter and all the X, whatever it would appear. And I also think it would have been a chance for him to make a point that is kind of ties in with what we were discussing throughout this this whole conversation, namely, what do we stand for as Americans? Who are we? And he could have said, look, this is the face of autocracy. This is the kind of brutal invasion of another country, just because you don't think, you particular, Putin, don't think it should exist as an independent nation. You couldn't do that in a democracy. You'd have to persuade the voters that this was a good idea to send their sons to, to such an adventure. But, a, but an autocrat can do it, and they do do it on a regular basis. And we uh, in the United States have certainly made our share of mistakes in our foreign policy, but we have also we also have a proud history of standing up for smaller, weaker countries that are invaded by or oppressed by bigger, more aggressive neighbors. And that is one of our roles in the world is to be a beacon of liberty, to be the arsenal of democracy, as we called ourselves in the Second World War before we even got into the war. Um, and uh, this is a smaller democratic country. Yeah, is Ukraine perfect? No, no country is perfect, but Ukraine is a Western-leaning democratic country that is fighting for its very survival. It is being, uh, the, the, the crimes that are being committed against it by, by Russia are despicable, and it is our great honor and privilege to help the Ukrainian people uh, to fight off this kind of aggression. And that is part of what it means to be uh, a leader of the free world. And that is a role that we have undertaken since the end of World War II. It's in our national DNA. And I am proud to be continuing a tradition, you know, that began with Roosevelt and was upheld by Truman and Eisenhower and, you know, list them all. And, uh, and that is part of who we are. And, and, uh, you know, and, and we have rallied NATO around us. Putin thought he could destroy NATO. NATO is stronger than ever now, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he might even throw in something uh, about how, if you are concerned about China and what China's plans are in the world, the very best thing you can do to ensure that China thinks that they're, you know, that that this is the time to attack Taiwan is to, you know, allow Ukraine to go under. 
So for all of those reasons, for our own values and interests uh, and for world peace and for uh, our concern about the threat from China, for all of those reasons, we have to support Ukraine to the hilt. I'm voting for you, Mona. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just, just, here's my website. (laughs) You know, just, just the crass political argument for doing it, you would think would, would, you know, carry some weight in the White House. I don't understand it. I mean, if you look at Biden's polling numbers, um, they go south two years ago at the time of the totally shambolic, catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, I know that they're all convinced that they, A, made the right decision and B, that they, you know, carried it off as best that could possibly be carried off, et cetera. The politics of it are clear. The the Afghan withdrawal shattered his reputation with American voters for competence. And yet yeah. he has managed, I think, even with all my criticisms, and I've been pretty critical, uh, the Ukrainian thing about as well as one you know could hope. I mean, they could have done more and you know faster, but all things considered, it's gone better than one might have anticipated particularly after Afghanistan. So here was a chance to wash away some of the, you know, the, uh, you know, the public uh, view of him as incompetent. And I mean, mm-hmm. by the way, I think he just didn't do himself any service during his press conference appearances in, in August of uh, 2021, because he was so uh, waspish testy. and testy and cranky this would be an opportunity to kind of, you know, wipe a lot of that away and restore his reputation for competence. And yet they don't seem to be in the slightest bit interested in doing it. I don't understand it. I don't understand it at all. And, uh, and yeah, as you say, just purely as a crass political matter, um, you know, he, he doesn't need to do it, but after he gives a brilliant, you know, inspiring America as the leader of the free world speech, can have his assistants say, and by the way, you know, Trump is, uh, is praising Putin, you know, uh, that's, that's your choice, ladies and gentlemen, uh, somebody who wants to lead the free world and stand up for freedom and fight vicious aggression and somebody who sympathizes with vicious aggression. Our guest has been the Bulwark's very own Mona Charon. Mona, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's been really fun having you. Um, I hope we can have you back from time to time. I can't tell you how much I was looking forward to this ever since you asked. <laughs> and, and and I hope that this prompts you to write a sequel, you know, volume two of Useful Idiots. I think, <laughs> I think we need it. I might have to. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eric.